So we're here in the book of 1 Kings. We've traveled, traveled a bit through the scriptures, and we come to this book of 1 Kings, and I think it might be important for us to really readdress what it is we're doing in the scriptures. We uh, began in the book of Genesis, obviously. It was uh, my, my goal, my purpose, uh, trusting in a wise, approving providence that we might uh, press on and look at really a bird's-eye view, if you will, of all of the scriptures, beginning in the book of Genesis. I'm persuaded that that's a very helpful practice for us to see uh, the way the Lord is working progressively through the scriptures. The reality is is that uh, likely most of us have never heard one sermon on the book of 2 Samuel, for instance, or on the book of Leviticus, or on the book of Obadiah, for instance. And so the reality is it's important, it's important for us to, uh, to really consider the Word of God uh, and its history for us. And so uh, I was reminded this week of one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's great works called uh, Life Together. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a number of works. Um, you may be familiar with his probably most popular work, The Cost of Discipleship. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was part of what began to be called the Confessing Church in Nazi Germany. So Bonhoeffer was actually in America for perhaps a year as the rumblings of the Second World War occurred. And Bonhoeffer had an opportunity to stay. Uh, But he decided very purposefully and intently that he would go back, suffer with the people of God. And in the nation of Germany at that time, there was much compromise in the church. Uh, and Bonhoeffer was part of what was referred to as the Confessing Church, uh, not unlike what Martin Luther would commend years and years before, that there is a difference between professing Christ and confessing Christ, particularly when it comes to difficulty and hardship. And one of the things that Bonhoeffer brings up in his work, Life Together, which is really, uh, a, I think, a tremendous treatise on the fellowship of believers. It was taken really from experiences from the Word of God and his experience at Finkwald Seminary that Bonhoeffer was a part of. It was basically a secret seminary. If you're familiar with Bonhoeffer's life, you would also know that he was, uh, he was killed uh, by the order of Heinrich Himmler uh, only really days before the Allies were, were basically to rescue and occupy Germany. And so, uh, really a fascinating work. But nonetheless, Bonhoeffer brings to the fore something that would be very, very important for us to recognize. And that is that the history recorded in the Word of God is the most important history that we have. It's, it's more important than our lives here today to us. Uh, the reality is, is our lives here today are not recorded in the Bible. Not specifically. We can certainly find ourselves in the history of the Scriptures as we see that we are currently redeemed and in, as it were, recorded in the, in the New Testament in the last days. And there surely is aspects of the New Testament that have not yet occurred, and so we can no doubt find ourselves there. But the point, the point is, is that the history in the Scriptures, the story of redemption accomplished, is urgently important for us. And so when we look at the Bible, when we look at a book like 1 Kings, that it's possible that none of you, or some of you, uh, perhaps have never even read, 
it's important for us to see that what is recorded there is urgently important and has everything to do with the process in which we enjoy redemption. Our redemption was accomplished through the remnant that is spoken of in the book of 1 Kings. It's accomplished through the work of the prophet Elijah and Elisha in the book of 1 Kings. It's accomplished through the sweep of history. And we're reminded of urgently important things in this book of 1 Kings. And that will also be true of every other book that, that we can look at in the scriptures of the word of God. Now the other thing that Bonhoeffer brings up is this idea... That we are inclined, and while he doesn't mention Elijah, we, we are, Lord willing, going to focus on Elijah today and on uh, the king Ahab of Israel, on his wife Jezebel, and on the other works that we see there in the book of 1 Kings. But nonetheless, we also are inclined to do, as Elijah does, to be drawn into our own struggle, right? And to forget the reality That the big deal here today isn't actually us. Breathe. Because that's true. It's not about you. It's about God. The book of 1 Kings is about God. It's a book about God. And when we get hold of this idea that the most important person in the room is God and not us. And the most important event today is what God is doing, not what He's doing for us. Then we will, as God's people, begin to see more and more the sweetness and the joys of fellowship. Because the reality is, is, is this is when we step into the Word of God, even the book of 1 Kings, the reality is, is we should step into it as a fellowship of God's people, going where God is going in community together. And so I pray that, that we'll continue to lay hold of that as we look here at the book of 1 Kings. So what we have in the book of 1 Kings really is a kingdom divided. We know that the kingdom was together with the first king, children who was the first king of the monarchy in Israel. There was another man from the tribe of Benjamin that also had the same name that shows up quite uh, glowingly in the New Testament. His name was Saul also known primarily by his Roman name, Paul. Uh, but so the first king in Israel was, was, was Saul. And then the next king we see was anointed was King David, and his son was Solomon. And after Solomon, then the kingdom was divided. The kingdom was divided between Judah and all the rest of Israel. And we see that the line of Christ and uh, the redemption was running through the tribe of Judah, and we see that all throughout the Scriptures. But we also see that God, of course, very kindly uh, commended His work and made promises to the leaders in Israel as well. 
But in this book of 1 Kings, we have immediately following Solomon, we have Jeroboam. Um, and although he was visited by God, he did involve himself immediately with golden calves. He foolishly forgot history. But nonetheless, in Israel you had Jeroboam, Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, who only reigned seven days, Omri, Ahab, and Ahaziah. And then in Judah you've got Rehoboam, Abijam, and Asa, who is recorded as a good king, and his son Jehoshaphat also recorded as a good king. We know that Ahab ruled uh, during the time of Asa and Jehoshaphat. So Asa was, uh, and Jehoshaphat were kings of Judah. And we'll focus uh, on that period of time along with Ahab, who was the king of the rest of the nation, Israel. Now, I'd like to bring up something about Jeroboam here, just really as an aside. When we look at uh, Jeroboam, so Jeroboam was drawn by God to lead the nation of Israel after its split and Rehoboam was in charge of the nation of Judah. And so what we see here in the book of 1 Kings In chapter 11, we see that God actually made some promises to Jeroboam were he to lead the nation of Israel faithfully. And then we see, uh, we see also later on in the book here in 1 Kings chapter 12 that Jeroboam actually creates golden calves and turns away from the Lord immediately. And the point that I want to bring up very briefly with Jeroboam is that I want to encourage you to recognize that when we attribute the expectation that, for instance, the reason that Jeroboam, king of Israel, failed miserably as a king was because he did not perfectly obey God and what God commanded him, would be to attribute to God that which, frankly, isn't true of God. To to say that God demanded and required absolute perfect obedience by Jeroboam in his leadership of Israel, would be to attribute to God that which he did not do. It would be to attribute to him uh, a characteristic that we find already, right, as mean-spirited, okay? And also, uh, you know, really, in a sense, uh, unacceptable and very dissatisfying, right? This idea that you must, that Jeroboam was, was required to obey God absolutely perfectly, and that's why he failed. Now, here's my point. My point is, is we, we should, as God's people, recognize that what shows up already in the Old Testament after the first covenant, which ended with Adam and Eve, was that God was, had a gracious covenant. He made promises to His people. And we're, we're talking not about perfect obedience, but about evangelical obedience, about gospel obedience. The reality is, what did Jeroboam mean to do? Right? You can, look at, you can look at King David. Did David follow God perfectly? No, he did not. 
He did not. But we, we again see that David, time after time, stepped into the means of obedience. And we see that God blessed that. Not because he owed it to David, but because he had made promises to David. And he understood what? The script, what does the Scripture say about David? That David perfectly followed God? No, it doesn't say that. But it does say this. It says that David was a man after God's own heart. You see, there's a difference. There's a difference. And, and again, if we, if we apply to God this niggardly expectation that He demands perfect obedience or wipes us out, that's to attribute to God wickedness. And that would be wrong for us to do. And if, we're, if we approach God in that way, then we may also approach God with this idea that He doesn't really mean it when the Lord Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who are burdened with your sin, that He doesn't really mean it. They doesn't care about us. That's not true. That's to attribute that which isn't true about God. The reality is, is that God is a gracious God. Yes, He does judge sin. But we see that God, God is kindly to us. He doesn't overlook it. We know that He lays it upon, upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, that the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, and that we don't, we don't sin as if it doesn't matter. But nonetheless, we're looking at a gracious God. At a gracious God. Imagine if my little girl brought me a drink of water and she spilled it all over the ground before she got to me. What am I going to do? Am I going to yell at her because she spilled the water? Or am I going to look at her heart and say, Thank you. Thank you. That's how God works for us. And that's how God sees us. What did you mean to do? That's a very important question. Because even, even, when, the, even when the prophet Samuel was looking at Jesse's children, what did he say? Don't look on the appearance. Look at the heart. Look at the heart. Now you know. You know that... There, there is a shameless tincture to my own preaching and proclamation such that involves very heavily that we must enter into manfully the things of God. That we must get behind the plow and we must not walk away from that plow. But we also need to remind ourselves day after day that we serve a gracious God. That we, we don't get what we deserve. He bountifully gives to us the reaping. We plant one seed, we reap a hundred. And that's the way the Lord works. We have a gracious God. And so it's important for us, again, and we look at this book of 1 Kings, and again, you may say, well, wow, I, I don't know that I'll ever look at this again. Well, I hope that isn't true of you. I hope when we, when we look at this book of 1 Kings, you can say, that's my history. There's the, there's the line of redemption running right through there. This is where I show up. This is where my redemption was purchased, right here in this line. right? And so we see that in the book of 1 Kings. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer is reminding us of that in his book, Life Together. Will you follow God with gospel obedience? So here we go. I've, I've uh, recited to you the kings in Israel and the kings in Judah. And so we turn now to... 1 Kings chapter 17. 
in verse 1. This is the first mention of the prophet Elijah right here in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. What do we find? Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, Elijah is like a Melchizedek figure. We know nothing about him. The fact that he was a Tishbite, that nobody even knows where this place is. Where he came from. And he says, The God that I stand before has declared to you that there will be no rain. And drought was always uh, really an expression of God's judgment. And we see this is the way that we're introduced to Elijah. This rough-hewn man, this one who uh, really we see in many ways exemplifies the office of prophet. It appears that he had a hairy cloak, as it were. He placed that on the shoulders of Elijah as he anointed him. And we also see that the Elijah of the New Testament, the uh, John the Baptist, also was a man, a rough-hewn man that lived in the desert, not unlike Elijah. And so here, here we go. And this one that will go toe-to-toe with Jezebel, we could say the same thing of him that was the Lord Jesus said of John the Baptist. What did you expect? to find in the wilderness. Did you expect to find a man that was dressed in fine clothing? No. No, you should expect to see the rough-hewn man of Elijah, and that's what we have right here. He shows up on the scene as if out of nowhere, like a lightning bolt at midnight. Now, so there's Elijah. Now, let's look over here in chapter 18. Elijah confronts Ahab. In verses 1 through 6 here, the Bible says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. This is the third year of the drought. Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with the bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. So there you have it. That's the state of affairs of the drought here. So Obadiah is uh, a significant figure in the administration of King Ahab. Um, It doesn't appear that this is the Obadiah that uh, had the book named after him as a minor prophet, but nonetheless, this Obadiah did honor the Lord and at great uh, expense to himself and also great difficulty, no doubt, and great danger in the eyes of the wicked Jezebel. He took 100 prophets and provided for them and kept them away from Jezebel. So Ahab says to Obadiah, again, this is the state of the affairs. It's so bad. He says, Obadiah, you go that way. I'm going to go this way. We're going to look and see if we can find any grass or pasture so that maybe all of the animals won't die. Now, you might think, well, doesn't he have people that can do that for him? Well, again, this is the state of the administration of King Ahab in this day. You can, should be able to see from that great difficulty and, and tedium and demand. So what happens next is Elijah encounters uh, Obadiah here. 
And um, in verse 7, as Obadiah was on his way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him, fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him in his eye, Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Verse 12, As soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Now, you'll search high and low to find any humor humor in the book of 1 Kings, but it's right here. Uh, There's a little bit of it here anyway. So what's happening here is that here's Elijah. He encounters encounters Obadiah, and Obadiah knows who he is, right? Elijah is obviously a well-known prophet, and he has a reputation for being quite elusive and difficult. And so he says, Obadiah, go tell Ahab that uh, I'm here, that we're going to meet. And Obadiah says, what, do you hate me or something? Are you trying to get me killed? Like, right. I'm going to go tell Ahab that you're here, and then when I bring Ahab here, you're not going to be here. You're going to be somewhere else. And so that's that's how it goes. But nonetheless, we see that, that Ahab and Elijah do meet one another. And we see here what follows next is the prophets of Baal, this event on Mount Carmel. And so what we have on Mount Carmel is 450 prophets. Children, that's a big number. There's a lot of people in 450. You know, that's, uh, that's like seven or eight times how many people are in this room right now. So all those folks, uh, they weren't merely Baal worshippers, right? They were prophets of Baal. Right, they were. These were folks that uh, that had uh, significant commitments to this to this uh, one who wasn't in fact God, to this false god Baal. And so, what uh, occurred with Elijah was that he he uh, asked that all the prophets of Baal would gather on Mount Carmel, um, and and he uh, had them set up a sacrifice for their god Baal to uh, consume that sacrifice, and then later he would, he would set up a sacrifice for God. And the point was, is that, is that Elijah would bring this whole thing to a head, as it were. And we see in verse 21 of chapter 18, this very, very interesting term. I should have put it in one of the key words for today. In 1 Kings chapter 18... In verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. We've heard similar ideas. Uh, We've heard Joshua say the same thing in the book of Joshua. How long will you go on limping? How long will you go on limping between two gods. If the Lord is God, then serve Him. If the Lord is God. And we could ask ourselves the same question. We could ask ourselves the same question. How long have you been trying to follow God? What does Elijah say to us today? Quit trying. Do it. Follow the Lord. 
How long will you go limping between the false God and the true God? Right? How long will you hesitate? How long will you be reluctant? How long will you not look to God? And so that's what, that's what Elijah has for all the people gathered there. And so he gathers up again the prophets of Baal. And it was uh, normal for them. Kyle and Delich say it was normal for them to, when they would uh, gather up their sacrifice, they might, in the little hollow places, put a flame there so it would look like it was miraculously lit. But nonetheless, so, so again, there's a little bit of humor in First Kings as they try to appease a God who is no God uh, to come and eat up this sacrifice. And of course, nothing happens. And, uh, and then in 18, verse 38, we see that um, the prophet Elijah sets up his own sacrifice such that uh, God would consume that sacrifice. And he, he has uh, his helpers dump water on the sacrifice so that it would be undeniable when the Lord completely consumes everything there. And in 18, verse 38, the Bible says this, The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Did you ever wonder about God? Did you ever did you ever sort of secretly demand that He step into your life and and that He you require of God that He would that He would uh declare himself in your life? Well, he's done it right here in 1 Kings chapter 18. This this is your history here. Right? You want to you want to know who God is? You want to be awestruck by this God and we'll see Elijah again when he goes to the cleft in the rock, the same place that Moses saw God, saw the glory of God. Elijah goes to that same place. He travels 200 miles and goes to Mount Horeb and there God reveals himself. And the reality is is that Elijah's Elijah's mind was drawn away from the awesome power of God to his own difficulty and demand and God said, Yes, I'm all-powerful. And here's the opener for me. Here's the opener for me. A whirlwind that breaks rocks and stones, an earthquake and a fire, and all those things announce who I am, and I'll come to you in a whisper. This is our history. This is God declaring Himself. You ever wonder about who God is? Is He the true God, the real God? Well, just go back and look at 1 Kings chapter 18. Right there, right then and there. The false gods, obviously expressed in Baal, and the true God is expressed in Yahweh, Israel's God, the one true God. What happens? Well, Baal shows himself to be nothing. And God shows himself to be the one true God. The Lord sends rain. Verse 41 of chapter 18, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing rain. It's happening. You better take your chariot and get home because pretty soon all this ground that you're going to try to cover to get home is going to be covered in mud. And your chariot wheels are not going to roll on that. So you better get on ahead home. And so what happened is rain came. And just as God uh, had indicated, and that's what occurred. And so the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, verse 46 of chapter 18. The Bible says the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab 
to the entrance of Jezreel. Let me tell you something. Elijah wasn't no pot-bellied preacher. Running before Ahab to Jezreel. And he'll go on 200 miles and spend 40 days and 40 nights in the desert on two meals. And then he'll encounter God. And what we find in the book is that apparently he was a little bit tired after that. Matter of fact, he was pretty much, pretty much wiped out. Chapter 19, verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Left his servant there. Not sure why he did that. I think he sort of anticipated a moment with the Lord, and that's exactly what happened. Now, so what's going on in the life of Elijah right now? This apparent ministry failure, that in witnessing the display of the vindication of the true God over Baal, slaying 450 prophets of Baal, he didn't silence, slow down, or turn the vengeance of the wicked Jezebel, very resourceful as she is, or bring about a thoroughgoing revival. That didn't happen didn't look like it happened anyway. And so what we have here is Elijah in absolute distress. Absolute distress. He goes uh, and is cared for by God. He sat down under a broom tree, chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 4. He asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, the idea here isn't that Elijah thinks he's better than his father's, but the idea is that Elijah is an old man at this point. And basically, he assesses his life and he says, you know what? The progress that I've attempted to make is not any more than my father's have made. There's no reason for me to outlive them. In other words, I've worn out in ministry. It's time for me to go to heaven. Now, we notice that God has another idea, but it's important for us to see what's going on in Elijah's mind right now. What does he want? He longs for people to worship God. He looks around him and he sees a culture that is turned away from God, wickedly, studiously, decidedly, turned away from God, time after time after time, worshiping false gods, involving themselves in that which is not God or the worship of God, and bringing to themselves, as Psalm 16 says, all of the difficulties of those that turn away from God will build. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that the way of the sinner is hard. The way of the sinner is hard. And the reality is is that judgment comes after the sinner. That's why we so desperately need a Savior. But this is what Elijah longed for. He longed for people to worship the one true God. He longed to see a thoroughgoing revival in the nation of Israel. He longed for God to come and to bring judgment on those evildoers who were studiously working against the things of God. And he was exhausted, absolutely. And so God asks him this question. 
He asks him this question twice, and Elijah responds in the same way twice. In verse 9, we see that the question is asked, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Now again, here's Elijah's state of mind. Really, we could probably call him uh, uh, kindly a bit overwhelmed. Um, he's had a very, just an absolutely physically, a breathtakingly exhausting situation here for, for Elijah. He's ready to die, right? He's, uh, he finds himself to be a bit disappointed in the way things have gone. Filled with prophetic power and strength, a mighty instrument in the hands of God during a very dark time in Israel. And with great despair, what does he say in verse 10 and also in verse 14? The same thing is said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. They seek my life to take it away. Since Elijah didn't see the expected fruits of his labors, he thought that all was lost. And in Elijah's gloomy state of mind, he overlooked the fact that Obadiah concealed a hundred prophets from Jezebel's vengeance. And he also overlooked that all the people assembled on Mount Carmel had given glory to God upon his command. And they seized the prophets of Baal and put them to death. Elijah and his zeal for the honor of God wasn't free from human passion. And he was led by the absence of visible fruit in his own life to overlook the work of the Lord. There is tacit reproof here in Elijah's words to God. Not unlike, perhaps, the way Peter would speak one time recorded in the Gospels to the Lord Jesus Christ when he attempts to manage Jesus. That's always a bad idea. The Lord Jesus doesn't need a manager. And God doesn't need for us to tell him about how things are going. And so Elijah, really, there, there is a bit of a tacit reproof here when he talks to the Lord. And the idea kind of is this. Basically, I'm the only one here working. And because you've kind of slow-rolled this whole thing, I've suffered for that. And if you could sort of speed it up a little bit, uh, then, you know, I would maybe have a little bit better life here. And I would really love to see, uh, you know, the entire nation of Israel worship you uh, in a loving manner and so forth. And so we see a little bit of that in Elijah right here. But uh, I think what we really should attribute that to is the idea that Elijah was human. He was human. Elijah was a faithful man. And he should absolutely be recorded in our own minds as is revealed in Scripture as that of a faithful man. One who was urgently desiring to see God honored as he should. And so we see here that he's brought to this cleft of the rock on Mount Horeb and God reveals himself for who he is. I'd like to read for you Revelation chapter 4, at least touch on it. I draw your attention to Revelation 4.
Children, I want you to say with me Revelation chapter 4 together. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Yeah, it's okay. Go ahead and say it out loud. Revelation chapter 4. Yeah, Revelation. Now, now so here's, here's what I want to encourage you with. If you ever wonder what God is up to, if you, if you ever wonder about the glories of God, the awesomeness of God, then I urge you to turn to Revelation chapter 4 and just get a glimpse of what's actually happening in the world. This is what's happening in heaven right now at this moment. And we know that John saw this and recorded it for us. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he sat there who had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. All around the throne, on each side of the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like had the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And each of them was saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We've got to get hold of this. Every day, every moment of every day. That's what's happening that's reality. And we step into reality in 1 Kings right here. We step into the reality of what God is doing. We step into the reality of redemption accomplished for each of us. And it's important for us not to, in our humanity, be overwhelmed with the situation of our own day. Yes, we must manfully enter into what it is that God's given us to do. But the real question is, what is God doing? And what am I doing here? What am I doing here, right? And what is God doing? Now indulge me for a few moments here as I consider some application. Some application here from the book of 1 Kings, particularly with Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal and with an awesome God at Mount Horeb. Many are drawn to our fellowship due to, we trust, a God-given persuasion that the church militant must actively stand against the wicked cultural forces pressing into our very lives and homes, and that God intends to be present in us via the Holy Spirit, to be the remnant of the kingdom in our day and to sweep all the elect into the kingdom. Not unlike soldiers in battle whose assigned units have been ravaged by war, we are drawn together and form a new battalion for the Lord as the battle continues. In this, we enjoy fellowship at its very pinnacle. Friendship at its very pinnacle is combat friendship. There is no duplication for that. And that's what we enjoy. That's the reality of where we are. That's who we are as God's people, right? However, we must also 
uh, we also have inclinations due to the intensity of the battle and the metal, the metal in those who step into the fight of faith. We have challenges. This is what I'm saying. The people who are called to enter into this fight of faith, as the Apostle Paul says, are a people who have certain metal and inclinations in their own psyches and souls that sometimes are a challenge. And one of the greatest failures that I had as a chaplain in the United States Navy serving the Marine Corps is that I did not take into account the absolute intensity in the nature of a man that would command thousands of Marines and what that would mean to his family. That he might treat his family like the Marines. They aren't Marines. They're his family. That he might treat his wife as the executive officer of his unit instead of this one that God has given to him to love and to be his counselor and friend. And so it's very, very important for us to recognize that we are in the battle of our day, but that we also must look to these things that must be dealt with. We forget the need for nourishment. We're humans. We overlook the good others do. We obsess over differences the best of men disagree on. We allow the battle to eclipse our devotion to God and one another. We lose the sense of wonder as we consider our awesome God. We may even quietly reprove God for His management of the universe and the kingdom of God. Hear me now. Warfighting effectiveness can in some ways be described not only as the direct result of intentional actions, but as a byproduct of the well-honed and maintained ethos of the fighting unit. Devotion to God, country, and comrades was at the forefront of, for instance, the boys of Pontohoc on the 6th of June, 1944. Here's my point. You would be shocked, but were you to listen to the most brutal of warfighting commanders, he would tell you this. What is the very foundation of the warfighting effectiveness of my unit is their love for one another. You would be shocked to hear that from him. But it's absolutely true. And the point that I'm making is this, is that we see this in the book of 1 Kings, is that the ethos of our combat fellowship and friendship, from that will be the byproduct of warfighting effectiveness, of this effectiveness to take the kingdom by force, joyfully entering into the challenges of our day. And that's what we see here in this book that we're called to. Development of our fellowship is an absolute necessity for gospel effectiveness. Our growing focus on God, on God, the God of the whirlwind, the God of the earthquake, the God of the fire, and the God of the whisper. If we lose sight of the awesomeness of God and what He is doing, we will then walk away from that which we desperately must have. And that thing which alone validates who we are as God's people. What is it? It's revealed in the book of 1 John, the same one that wrote about the awesome God in Revelation chapter 4. They will know we are Christians by our love. Our love one for another. The fact that we love God, we love His Word, and we love His people. Now our growing focus on God, His glory, and actions in our world, and our stubborn insistence, stubborn insistence, I say, in loving each one in our fellowship well, 
which may involve challenging discussion, awkward repentance, and unfamiliar kindness, will absolutely describe how this must go. Well-thought-out reproof will make up a large portion of how we become like Christ. You want to become like Jesus? Stand by. Stand by, because you know what? It's going to take reproof. It's, it's going to take somebody coming to you and saying, you know what? This is off the mark. And, and, and we all need to be faithful in Christ together. And let us delight ourselves in the glory of God revealed in the way that we love one another well. Now those of you who are not yet redeemed, those of you who don't know Christ... You must join us. We we are going to the only place that represents life. There is no other destination. Everywhere else is death. Only with Christ is life. Only with Christ is life. And the Lord Jesus says, and has certainly authorized me to say as well, come with Christ. Follow Him. Let us pray.